Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 96 of the Adventure Games Podcast. I hope everybody is well and everybody's enjoying their Christmas break for those who celebrate. And this week for our New Year's Eve special, I am joined by none other than David Fox. Now the word legend is thrown around quite a lot, but in this case I think it's safe to say that David Fox is a legend. He is the creator of Zack McCracken. He is one of the co-creators of Maniac Mansion. He also worked on Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, and uh, Labyrinth, and many other games at LucasArts. And he's very instrumental in the creation of Lucasfilm Games, which then became uh, LucasArts. And he also spoke to me about his time working for Timberweed Park. And he gave some very interesting anecdotes, such as he revealed the origins of the famous I'm selling these fine leather jackets line. He revealed whose idea it was to put the hamster in the microwave. And he also said which character was his favorite in Timberweed Park and all that and much, much more. So please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining for another episode of the Adventure Games podcast. I am with David Fox today who worked previously for LucasArts and worked on a number of games there. And, of course, the uh, latest game you worked on, I believe, was Timberweed Park. So, hello, David. How are you? Hi there. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. It really is an honor to speak to you, a developer of some of my favorite games <laughs> that, uh, that I've played over the years. And uh, so it's great to, to have you on the show. Um, so I was... Uh, Wondering, for, uh, first of all, um, now I'm sure people listening to this podcast know who you are, but I was wondering what I ask every developer is to, if you wouldn't mind, just to briefly introduce yourself. And have you played any adventure games recently yourself, or have you had time to play any games yourself? Well, okay. Well, so, yeah, I'm David Fox. Um, I I was um, been designing or working on games for over 40 years, and um, Actually, the first the first adventure related games I worked on were ports of Scott Adams' text adventure games back in the late seventies. Um, he wrote them for the Radio Shack computers, the TRS eighty, and I I worked with him while we while uh, through the computer center I ran with my wife to port them to the Apple II and to um, CPM systems, um, and always loved adventure games and when i went to, when i started working at lucasfilm um lucasfilm games which became lucasarts that was the kind of game i most wanted to do um i played other games i mean recently not all the way through i did a couple of checked out on like on Roki, which i liked a lot and um but mostly i just don't have a huge amount of time um i have a few um, games like I've been fo- focused more on VR, so looking at games in VR that are kind of in that genre. But um, I just got my Quest 2 yesterday or two days ago, and looking forward to try something on that. Wow, nice, nice. So you're uh, keeping it on top of the new technology as you've you've always seemed to be doing. So oh, yeah. Uh, w- would you be interested in making any games for VR from what you've seen of it? Yeah, well, I'm actually doing that now. I'm working on, uh, there's a game I did um, that released in 2000, almost almost seven years ago in 2013, um, called Ruborks, which is based on Rube Goldberg's cartoons from the 1930s and 40s uh, using you know his chain reaction machines. And the game came out for mobile and for desktop. It's on Steam. And I wanted to do a VR version of it since we used Unity. Um, it's already really in 3D, so I've been working on creating a VR version of that for the past half year. And um, it's very, it's really cool. It's like you're 
it's way more intimate where you actually can pick up objects with your hands and move them rather than touching a, an object on a screen. So just it's a much more immediate feel, kind of like playing in a dollhouse or something, and then then watching the, the chain reaction happen. So that so definitely um, that's an interest. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I've and I've never really played an adventure game in VR, but I can imagine that adventure games could be nearly perfect for VR. That you would be the character walking around, picking up objects and using objects, and you'd be the one doing it. Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, that's something I'd like to do at some point. Um, I I'm not a huge fan of horror type games, so I wouldn't do one like that. I would probably. Yeah, probably would. I mean, one thing about adventure games that I worked on, you know, they're generally side scrollers, and you're they're kind of far away, so you're, you're almost like watching other characters do it. And um, in VR, it could be the same, where you could, you know, be working, following another character around, um, and giving direction or helping, um, or it could be you. Um, Moss, the game Moss is a VR game where you're really kind of a spirit that helps this little mouse move around and, and do things. And it's kind of a combination adventure and, and, and I guess kind of like a, I want to say platform, but yeah, it, it takes some more, more dexterity than I had. It's not just straight puzzle solving. It's also timing and balancing and things like that. Um, which I found a little difficult, but um, I think it's a perfect, perfect thing. I, there a lot of games are more like escape room type games, um, which have a kind of a adventure feel, but they tend to be, you know, something you can do in an hour. Um, so yeah, but huge. Um, this is just opening up. I think the quest two um, should dramatically open up the market because of its cost and it's it's better a lot better than the quest one the first version which i also have um and i'm excited to see people's reactions when they try vr for the first time yeah so this is opening it up to because i i suppose would it be fair to say that at the moment it's more of like a niche market that not everyone has the equipment for vr but over time maybe I suppose, like you're saying, that it gets cheaper and easier to use if more people begin to use it. Yeah, um, at $300 now for the entry price, um, at least in, in U.S. dollars, that that puts it in the same ballpark as a console. And there there are a lot of games for it already. And it it's just, I mean, if someone, it's hard to describe it if you haven't tried it because something happens to your brain with all the cues coming in that never will happen on a flat screen. It just you, you really feel like you're in the space. It's called presence. And um, you can use words to describe it, but you have to really try it out. Right, so you have to see it to believe it. <laughs> you have to be in it to believe it. Right, to be it, <laughs> to be in it. And the last question on VR then is uh, that I have is: Do you did you feel a, a dizzy or anything when you first started using it? Because I know that's a feeling that a lot of people say that they felt, you know, kind of like with 3D as well, at least in movies. Um, did you feel that yourself, or do you think that nowadays with uh, with the equipment, with the advancements in VR, that people shouldn't feel uh, dizzy playing VR games? Yeah, there's definitely a huge range of content, and they tend to um, range from like something where you're more or less sitting down and bending over something, and in which case there's no motion, you're not really moving through space. Like Moss is a good example of that. Mm. Um, even um, something like Beat Saber, you're you're standing and moving, but you're not moving through an environment. Um, then there, the other end, there's I mean, I get motion sick on on first-person shooters as right. I'm moving around, and I, can't, I just can't do it. And, you know, I have a big screen, but it just even on a small screen, remember, um, the first time I played, I think it might have been Doom or something, um, way, way back, um, and I started, I didn't, you know, I was so involved in the game, I didn't know why I was feeling uncomfortable, and I kept trying to ignore it, 
And that's the last thing you should do is when you start feeling any of that sim sickness or motion sickness is to try to press through because you can't press through. You just get sicker and sicker until and it could last for you know hours afterwards. Um, in VR, most games are labeled um, with a level of comfort or discomfort, and everyone has a different um, tolerance to that. So you you know you start with things that are that are perfect, you know, they're really comfortable and easy to handle, and you go with you know know what you can handle and what you can't. Uh, it's not the tech; it's not really the headset as much as the way they're presenting stuff. And if it's like if you're if you're driving in a car, like I never get motion sick if I'm driving, but if if I'm in the passenger seat, um, that could happen on a windy road for me, mm. and just have to figure, especially if I'm reading at the same time. So you just you know, say, well, don't do that. <laughs> play that kind of game, you're okay. Okay, so it it sounds like there have been advancements made to to make it more comfortable for people. So that's that's great to hear. Yeah, and, and also check to see what the game says in terms of comfort level. Sure. Um, and like I said, some people can get motion sick immediately. Like my wife can't watch anything with a handheld camera on a TV screen. Um, and she gets motion sick, and and I'm I'm probably more average. And some people just nothing will get them uncomfortable. Okay. I oh, know you've nearly convinced me now to try VR now because I've always been interested. But as I said, the one thing that's been holding me back is the motion sickness because I tried some of the early versions and I was like, whoa. But it sounds like they've really made some uh, advancements in this technology. So Yeah. Well, also earlier versions when the screen, the frame rate was was bad or there was a lag from when you moved your head to when it moved on the, on the mm. visor. That's that's all gone. So you're okay. now you're now at least at sixty to ninety frames per second, and you know no lag at all when you move your head around, and and so that part's that technical part's gone. Now it's just you know whether they're moving you through a space or or turning you around or whatever, and and you just decide you know that's like you can look at the trailer and say no that looks like that's not going to be especially fun for me, um, so I'm going to skip that one. Cool. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear. I'll have to check out VR now in more detail okay. after after that. So you you convinced me. Okay. <laughs> so now then, just going back because you mentioned at the beginning that you've been working on games for about forty years, and now we could spend a long time to talk about your career. But I'm sure what listeners to this podcast will be most interested in to begin with is. Uh, when you started working for Lucasfilm, which became LucasArts. Um, I was wondering if you could let us know, how did you first get involved with Lucasfilm? You know, how, how did you get the job there to begin with? Um, well, I, I mentioned that my wife and I ran this nonprofit computer center um, from 1977 to 82. And um, we had people who drop in, or we had memberships. Um, and... While we were doing that, I also wrote some books. And when the, the last book I wrote was called Computer Animation Primer. And serendipitously, you know, we happened to be in Marin County was the same place where Lucasfilm was based. So, and we actually opened our doors the same year that um, Star Wars came out. So, I, you know, felt that there was always a connection in my mind, not in their minds. <laughs> and I, I, I just loved that movie so much. I wanted to be a part of the company if it could happen, but you know, I kind of figured that would never happen. And um, when I did the book on animation, computer animation, I was able to talk to the the relatively new computer division at Lucasfilm, and they were, you know, they gave me a lot of help. They gave me some footage I could use in, in the book and, and screenshots and technical reviews and the stuff we wrote. Got to know some of the people and hung out with them at SIGGRAPH, the graphics conference. And um, about a year later, after I finished writing the book, one of our computer center members was actually, um, he worked at IL Industrial Light and Magic. And he told me that there was this new games group that was starting up within the computer division. So I called the head of the computer division who I had met 
a year earlier. And he said he, they had just hired the person who's going to lead the group. And he said, when he starts, he'll make sure that I get interviewed. And I did. And I was the third person hired um, after Peter, who is the manager, and after Rob, who transferred from the computer division um, doing, I think, um, film printing with a laser over to doing games, which he wanted to try. So um, the other things, the fact that my manuscript um, was based on the Atari computer, um, you know, showing how to do animation with that. And Atari had just given Lucasfilm a million dollars to start the computer games group. Um, and we were going to do games for the Atari. Um, was also serendipitous. And the, my Peter was also looking for people who didn't have deep experience in companies doing computer games because um, he actually didn't want us to come in with preconceived notions on how you're supposed to do games. So all that just lined up perfectly and got the job. Right. And it took me, it took me a couple of years to stop pinching myself. I think <laughs> I, like, I can imagine. Yeah. How am I, am I going to get fired now because they're going to find out that I shouldn't really be here or you know, <laughs> that took a while. <laughs> It, oh, yeah. I think it was six months into my first game on Rescue on Fraculous before I, I realized I was actually the project leader. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually my game. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't played it, but I've I've heard of it and I've read a bit about it, and it seems again very advanced for its time. Uh, the uh, from what I've from what I've read, where you um, uh, well, you can tell us b better than than I can. But when you don't know who's the villain and who's the, you know, who are the good guys or the good pilots. Mm. And, um, and, and yeah, so you were, you found out six months into this project that you were the game lead on it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was, I knew that it was my idea and that I was doing it, but I just, we didn't have, we hadn't formalized the concept of project leaders and right. <laughs> titles. And I think I asked a question to Peter, the manager. So what's your game? You're the, you're the project leader. I said, oh. Yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> um, you know, I just felt like we, a bunch of us were doing stuff together, and it just hadn't really occurred to me that 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 I had that role. It was kind of silly, but you know, it was the first of our two games that we did. So, first two, first of you know that one plus Bobblies were the first two we did. Um, you know, the the brilliance of it really came from Lauren Carpenter, who was on loan to us from the computer division. It was my office mate initially when we first started there. He's the one who was the expert on fractal landscapes and moving through fractal environments. And for him, it was kind of this challenge to see whether he could um, create a fractal landscape on an 8-bit computer. And at first he thought it, would, it would, couldn't be done. And then he started thinking about it and said, hey, I think I know how we could do it. And um, so he he did that part of the heavy lifting. And I, I was my area was really the game, gameplay, game design, the wraparound story stuff and the the cockpit stuff and the going between the two and the timing and the scoring and all that. So, but the really heavy lifting, heavy duty code was Lauren and then Charlie Kellner who came on, who took Lauren's code and optimized it for the 6502 and added the flight dynamics and so animation routines for the, for the guy running and the sound sound system routines is you know he he was an early apple computer employee and i think number seven and so he just knew the 6502 inside and out and so having these two guys on the team just made made it look technically brilliant and i it was kind of up to me just to make it feel you know fun to play yeah uh, no, that sounds great, and I believe at least according to the now you can you can let me know if this is true or false. But according to the game's Wikipedia page, it says that you said that this game was the first computer game to really scare people. Did you did you say that? <laughs> I probably did. I mean, I, I, I it, it was definitely one of the first ones to give people a jump scare, mm. and. Um, I mean, I don't think you're really, it's not like horror movie frightening. It was really more like an adrenaline rush kind of hit because once it happens the first time, um, 
every other time that the it's situa situation comes up, you can feel like even me, you know, I knew I knew exactly what the random <laughs> likelihood of a, a jaggy monster popping up might be. Um, that um, I would still get like this little adrenaline hit as soon as I had to get ready to hit the right button to to kill him. Um, and we, you know, the the part that I was really happy about was that Atari played along with our request and had no press about this thing that happened in the game. And the first eight levels that you can play, it never happened. So people got really comfortable playing the game and getting into this you know, routine. And all of a sudden this thing happens after they've been playing for a few hours and, and you know, you know, it was slightly alluded to in the manual. People actually read the manual, but um, for most, it was just a shock. And the fact that you you're playing what you think is a, a sh you know, flying shooting game, and all of a sudden you you something pops up and starts smashing through your windshield. Um, and we, I still get stories from people who talk about the first time that happened. They had that experience, of what it did to them. <laughs> um, so yeah. I'm sure many many people jumped out of their seats then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and and now you've you've also worked on uh, well, Labyrinth, a computer game, I believe. Which again, I read that this that the game be was more com uh, commercially successful than the film, which sounds kind of crazy, but yeah, um, I don't know if it was. I mean, I, the the movie at the time wasn't a very big hit. It, it kind of became a cult hit afterwards like years later so at the time of release it it did you know it wasn't what hugely well received the game might have been more received better received in terms of reviews but because the film wasn't all that successful activision who's the publisher for us just before we published our own games um didn't do a huge push they didn't want to put a lot of money into marketing so you know it did okay, but it wasn't a huge hit. But it kind of got us into doing graphic adventures. That was like really the first one that we did at Lucasfilm Games. Right. And how was it adapting a movie? Because I believe Rescue and Fractalus was an original story, original idea, original game. And then next thing you have to adapt Labyrinth into an adventure game. And the two mediums are, as we know, very different. So how did you go about adapting Labyrinth in into a game were there any challenges or any any benefits um to doing that yeah well the the challenge really was that i mean the story was established the universe was established um i i think the way i was picturing this was you know this was our proving to lucasfilm that we could actually be trusted to take other content other because lucasfilm was the the uh, producer um, or the the what do you call it? They were the production company or the produce. I guess the distributor producer of the film. Um, that we could take other of their products like Indiana Jones or Star Wars and do well with them also. So it felt like it was kind of a a proof a, a test. They were giving us something that wasn't that important compared to the other ones to see how we did. Um, but the big question was, you know, do we how do how do we balance the assumption that people either did or did not see the movie and should we give any any advantage we don't want to give any advantage to someone who had seen the movie um we just wanted them to feel like they were in the same universe and hitting some of the same issues but having to come up with new solutions to solve things and i think we did pretty well with that um we we had a um at the very beginning of the project, we spent a week in London and got to brainstorm with Douglas Adams, who's friends with Jim Henson, who was the director on the film. And um, that was pretty amazing. Um, you know, some of the wacky, crazy ideas came from him. And, you know, it was kind of my job afterwards to take all the brainstorming ideas and try to put them into something that felt coherent and um i think we did okay with that um you know we also knew that um the um 
we were originally thinking of like, you know, kind of doing what Sierra Online was doing with having a text parser, but realized early on that we just didn't have the time to create a really um, solid um, text parser that could handle all the all the language that you might come up with. So we came, I think it was me, came up with this slot machine text interface where you had uh, slot wheels or vertical scrolling um, options for both verbs and objects in the room. And that was our solution, which kind of evolved, you know, Ron took that concept of not using a parser, which he also hated, Ron Gilbert, and then, you know, adapted that to the verb interface for Monkey Island. Um, and um, I think I think we got a got, got a good balance. You know, we the one plus is that since all the art, you know, all the production had been done on the film, we we had reference images of all the characters and the environments, so we didn't have to be original with that. But you know, also met, we also had some freedom to go a little bit outside that. We didn't have to stick completely to it, so it was good. Um, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so no, it, uh, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's, as you mentioned, um, you had to take Douglas Adams brainstorming and, you know, actually make them work. And, but it was uh, Lucas Adams first graphic adventure, I believe. And then, well, the rest is history. You went on to make other games and then you went before we talk about, well, Zach McCracken, because I, I believe you also worked on Indiana Jones, the last crusade. Is that, was that correct? Were you involved in that game as yeah. well? Yeah, yes. so the order was, you know, Labyrinth and Maniac Mansion and Zach and then Indy. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, we can. Well, actually, since uh, that was since, a, that was the chronological yeah. order. You can you can talk about them in any order you want, obviously. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. No. No worry. Thank you. No, because the, the reason I asked about Indiana Jones: Last Crusade is because this was the second uh, movie adaptation that you made into a graphic adventure. So I suppose my my question is, how do you learned anything from adapting Labyrinth and did he use that into Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the graphic adventure? Because Indiana Jones, Last Crusade was, I imagine, a much bigger film. It was a very, uh, very popular movie. So did that have its own challenges to making into a graphic adventure? Was there more pressure maybe making yeah, the game? There was definitely more pressure because, um, I mean, this is the third Indiana Jones movie. You know, it was a huge license, um, even though it was Lucasfilm production again um it was very important you know we i think all of us on the team were huge indie fans um so we we're also working with within a story of something that we were that we loved um we um yeah we also had you know another downside as with labyrinth is that there was a very very tight um schedule because we wanted to get the game ready to release at the time the film did so we really had like six months um instead of the usual nine to nine to twelve months and i think it took us ended up taking us like seven or eight i think we released it in july and it started in, in december of that year of the year before and um we yeah unlike labyrinth we felt that a huge percentage of the people who were playing the game had would have already seen the movie. Um, so it was even more important to not let that be um, something that would help you through. Um, so where we, we could, we would use scenes and locations and storyline stuff from the movie, but have the solutions and the puzzles be unique um, mm. to, to what we were doing. Um, and I mean, obviously, we knew, for example, near the end, you're going to have to find the right Grail Cup, and that wasn't a big surprise. But the the puzzle on how to choose it, uh, the right one, kind of was some stuff you had to pick up with through hints all the way through the game. It was randomized, so if you played it a second time, it would be different. Um, we had the idea of the Grail Diary. Yes, I was about to mention that. That's, that was one of my favorite parts. I loved that part, actually. Yeah, yeah, that was great. So that, that gave us a way to you know, not only be something which you needed to to really win the game, because there was reference material in there that was that was critical, but also just made you feel like you were in the in the story in a much more physical way than you would have been if it was just um, on all on the screen. And um, 
And un- unlike most other games, we actually had three three leads on this. You know, it was myself, Noah Faustine, and Ron Gilbert. We're all working together because of the tight deadline. So all of us kind of we split up the different parts of the game to to tackle it all all together. But we would all, you know, brainstorm to come up with ideas and rush out and, and implement them. Um, that was a, uh, actually a pretty fun project to work on. Um, you know partly because of who I was working with and, her, and also mm. because of the content. Um, we were working from the script because there was no really finished footage at the time. Um, so there were actually a couple of things in the game that got cut from the movie that were in the script, which was kind of fun. So you have some scenes that, um, like when it had to do with the radio operator in the Zeppelin, um, there was a scene where I think Indy knocks him out and destroys the radio. And in the movie, there's a scene where when the Zeppelin starts turning around, I think Indy says, well, I thought that that broken radio would, you know, it must have found the broken radio or something like that. (laughs) And like, it was like, huh? You know, in the movie, there was no, no reference to any radio before that. It just made no sense. So you have to have played the game to know what that meant or the script. (laughs) It's kind of fun. Um, but we did have, you know, production art and we got help from the library, the Lucasfilm Library, it's an amazing library that is a resource for research. And so we had reference material, some of the same reference material that they probably used in the movie for production. And um, yeah, it was just it was a fun project to work on. And I, you know, I love that, you know, the humor from the script. Um, I think we felt like we could amplify that and and add more jokes and that's where I think the fi- you know the fine leather jacket came from <laughs> that line. Um, we actually at the time that this was in production, um, everyone in the company had a, the option to buy a, a fine leather jacket, which was um, made out of distressed I think sheepskin or something leather. And it's like a flight jacket. And, um, you know, it was really good. I still have mine. It was a really good jacket. And um, so that kind of worked its way into the game and every other game that we did. Yeah, I remember that's become now a, a very famous line in just about every LucasArts game. And now, <laughs> and now LucasArts inspired games. And, yeah. uh, and a, a friend of mine, actually, who does another podcast, a Gaming Outsider podcast, well, I don't know him too well, but... Uh, when I first had him on this podcast to talk about another adventure game, and I asked him for his favorite adventure games, and he said it was uh, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. I remember playing this game as a kid. I always stuck with him, and every so often he goes back to replay it. So mm-hmm. it clearly struck a chord with people. Yeah. Um, but but it, the, the, yeah. the other thing that I thought was really unique for that game at the time was that we had this thing called Indie Points. Or indie yes, quotient. I remember. And... You know, we wanted to give people alternate ways to solve puzzles and you know where you could either use your you know fight fighting if you got really good at that or you know object using objects to do stuff or dialogues and um, we would track each way that you solved it and have like this meta score that we would keep track of across all the times you played through the game and you could never get all the full points in one playthrough, you'd have to go through multiple times to get the max. And that you know, was great for replayability. And I, and I think they took that concept a step further when, when Hal Barwood and Noah Faustin, oh, sorry, when Hal Barwood and Noah mm-hmm. Faustin ended up working on um, Fate of Atlantis, where you have these multiple paths you could choose. And there was... Uh, done differently, but um, still give you kind of the option of solving it different ways. Yeah, but it started in Last Crusade, and they, as you say, they took it on and developed it further. So yeah, in many ways, uh, Last Crusade was ahead of its time, and a uh, good thing it didn't turn out like the ET game, which nearly destroyed mm-hmm. the industry. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, turned out slightly better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, now we, we mentioned as well before this game came out, uh, you had, were involved. Well, you you were more than involved. You <laughs> you developed uh, two games, which also become slightly popular. I think it's fair to say uh, the first one is 
uh, Maniac Mansion, which I know uh, was uh, Ron Gilbert, I believe, was the lead developer. I believe you can correct me mm-hmm. if I'm yep. wrong. Um, so I suppose, how, what, what was your role exactly in this game, and how did this game come about? Well, I was going back Ron, a bit, but... <laughs> yeah, Ron, well, I think I must have been finishing up Labyrinth, and while I was doing that, Ron, Ron Gilbert, and Gary Winnick were working on Maniac Mansion. Um, they, you know, written the story, um, done the rough design of it, the characters design, the look, um, and Ron was busy creating this scum, you know, script creation utility for Maniac Mansion um, environment that would make it easier to code adventures. Like for Labyrinth, everything was done in 6502 assembly, and it was painful. And, and he wanted to do something where where you'd have a, a scripting language which was much easier to follow and read and you could do a lot more um uh i guess adventurous or difficult you know cutscenes, and you know that was something that came out of maniac mansion and um you know make it much more of a story like that like you're in a like a b-grade horror movie and um he had finally gotten most of the scum system done and i was kind of freed up and he he said, "Hey, would could you could I borrow you for a couple months to help me code this up, to script this?" So um, I said, "Sure." So um, I kind of jumped into their universe, and you know, Ron would write some initial cutscenes, and I would try to match the tone and the humor that he had set down. Um, and I ended up working on it for six months, and you know, this this game was just a lot bigger than I think he had expected just because the fact that you could choose from a collection of kids to be on your team and each each collection, each group that you put together had to had to end up with a winnable version of the game. And that just made it super difficult. It's like he, he was like creating way more work than he had to, although we did make it replayable, it just was a lot. Um, so I, I I was on for six months. Um, when I left to go on to start working on my next game, which was Zach, um, they still were still working on on debugging and testing and play testing and and tweaking and all that. So um, I was on for a six month period during the project. Still to this day, however many years later, people still say this is one of their favorite games. That on on Twitter there was a, a poll. Again, wanted like a tournament to see which game would be the most popular. Now, I think the most popular game ended up being Monkey Island, but then I think mm-hmm. second or third was Maniac Mansion. Mm-hmm. So again, it's still to this very day, thirty plus years later, struck a chord um, with with people, and it's it's funny as well because nowadays, of course, technology has kind of improved and uh, that, but still, there's still a lot of games that I feel like. I don't know if I feel like Maniac Mansion was definitely ahead of its time. That is meant with playing with different characters and with um, diff- with uh, you know different abilities that had more work. But um, and I suppose well, actually, a question I wanted to ask before I forget is whose idea was it to put the hamster in the microwave? Because that was yeah, that, genius. <laughs> yeah, that was my my idea. Oh, that was um, your idea. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> that, one that of those famous that things. Now. It wasn't authorized by the developers of the game. I just knew that you had a hamster, you had a microwave, and <laughs> you took out the hamster, and I said, I just had this evil streak kind of reared its head, and I said, okay, I have to do it. So I asked Gary, behind Ron's back, I asked Gary to give me um, art of a, a blood on a, on a microwave door, <laughs> you know, it's flat, and I wired it up, and then called Ron in and told him to do it, and he pushed the button on the microwave and went, ding, and he, you know, it, I guess there's a splat first and then the ding. And, uh, you know, we, we kept it. And, you know, there's no gameplay purpose for that. It doesn't, it's nothing you have to do. It's not advertised. Um, and only a couple of the characters, the kids, would actually do it. Most of the others would say, are you kidding? And um, I believe that became an issue when we did the Nintendo version. I was going to ask yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't involved in that on the conversion, um, the port to Nintendo, but they were pretty strict on a bunch of stuff, and they missed that because it wasn't listed and wasn't part of the gameplay. So I think there might have been 
a couple versions where we had that in it, and then they might have made us take it out for for later versions. No, well, it's it's back in there now. I think it's it's one of the most popular uh, scenes. I think in any adventure game, and he, as you mentioned, it, it it serves no purpose to the plot. But right. <laughs> but any adventure gamer, you know, the probably the first thing they will ask is with Maniac Mansion. Oh, did he put the hamster in the in the microwave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just would hate to find out that anyone actually did that in real life. <laughs> um, right yes that's they got their they got their experience that kicks off of doing it in the game and they, that was enough that that fulfilled their need to to experiment um the the other thing you know the other microwave gag i did was in zach mccracken with an egg and you know that was not a, a problem for um the egg i guess um but it was a it was a problem for the for the the, air, the airline stewardess or the flight attendant who you were trying to distract. So um, we have, we actually have a hamster in a microwave in, in Thimbleweed Park. Yes. But, I remember yeah, that. <laughs> that. That was really just the joke of putting him there, but you can't do anything bad. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about Timberweek Park now in just a moment, but in, in Timberweek Park for, for me with Ransom the Clown, it may kind of, sense because ransom the clown we see this very eccentric character when he opened the microwave and the hamster was just there and i thought yeah of course you know he would he would have a hamster in a microwave and it's also a funny gag because it re- it references uh, the gag in manic mansion so for me it worked on two levels but <laughs> right yeah um but before we get to timberweed park you mentioned there's zach mccracken and which again still is very very popular to this day and um, now with the, uh, the the story with the aliens, um, you know, with the, the this future back, back then and the world is a dumber place than ever and the aliens were making people dumber. Uh, do you think that they have succeeded in real life, that people have become dumber around the world? I mean, <laughs> yeah, conspiracies I, I, now and everything. And... Yeah, I think I think there's a there's some stuff that we foresaw. I mean, we, we did the game in 87, 88, 87. Um, I guess it was 87. and No, 88. And, it, and the idea was that it was supposed to take place like nine years later, like in, in 97. So we were trying to, I was trying to be, you know, think of the future and the whole idea of cash cards, mm. that people wouldn't need money anymore. And, you know, that kind of came true in some yeah. way. Although <laughs> I'd say probably more credit cards and cash cards, but still um, um, did not think about mobile phones probably. Um, and did have, I did come up with this huge widescreen TV, which did not exist at the time, but we tried to make it you know, massive, which definitely got, although you don't need this huge, the huge cabinet underneath it went away. Um, and um, as far as conspiracy theories, yeah, unfortunately, those are around way more than I thought we would have them, or way more people seem to believe them than, and we were trying to make fun of them all with this. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing was like, you know, this is like all the crazy conspiracy theories you might read in a, in a tabloid, in a, you know, we call them tabloid uh, newspapers here, um, would actually be true. And, you know, for I think for years after we did the game, I kept on, you know, people would point to articles and tabloids that kind of mimic what we had in the game. <laughs> that was kind of fun. Um, so, um, yeah, unfortunately, I think some people are not using their um, rational skills to figure out whether something makes any sense or not and just buying it like someone else tells it and spreading it. I don't know if that can get reversed. Um, I think with some of the social media we have, it just amplifies it in a way which I had never considered before. Definitely not when we did the game. No, definitely. I mean, this game, Zach McCracken, would 
you know, it's, it's very relevant for, you know, to, to for these days, for the days we live in, because it deals with conspiracy theories. And unfortunately, as we mentioned, there are seems to be more and more now that are amplified by social media. And not because some conspiracy theories can be fun, like in Zach McCracken, you know, the top popular theories about aliens and the Bermuda Triangle and that. But now, of course, there are nowadays conspiracy theories that are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, so, so how did you come up with this idea for Zach McCracken then to begin with? So this was an original idea that you came up with, right? Yeah, right. And how did you come uh, up with this idea? Well, I I was always interested in kind of new age kind of stuff, like, you know, things dealing with ancient, all that, you know, all those, all those theories and ancient aliens and, you know, psychic abilities and not especially ma- I wouldn't call it magic, but just, you know, superpowers in some way that are or mental. And um, I, you know, our, our general manager at the time at Lucasfilm game at Lucas, it was still called Lucasfilm games, um, had a friend up in the Seattle area named David Spangler and who had written books and was a spiritualist and, and, um, Steve suggested I go up and spend a couple of days brainstorming with him. And that's what we did. And so, we, you know, kind of like parallel to the week of brainstorming with Doug, Douglas Adams, this one, you know, with, with an expert on all things paranormal and spiritual, um, came, you know, we kind of create, created this master list of all these different areas that, you know, areas of, of power or, or mystery that existed on the planet and he knew about the face on Mars. So that came from, from him. Um, and, uh, it was, yeah, again, I came back with all these notes and I had to turn it into something that was cohesive. And the first pass, I mean, I think I found an old doc somebody just given me that referred to the game as ancient aliens. That was like the first name of it. And, um, the, the whole the original character's name was Jason, and he was more of a mainstream news reporter. And you know, Ron thought that he, well, I was I was intending for it to be funny. He thought thought we should amp that up a bit. So we we ended up with a brainstorming meeting with all the the project leaders and designers, and switched the name of the game, switched the name of the character. Um, came up with the idea that he was working at a tabloid instead of a mainstream newspaper, which kind of opened it up for way more wacky stuff to happen. And it, it was everything that I had in the game was still there. It just kind of twisted it like 90 degrees to make it more wacky and more um, um, more funny, you know, just, you know, off the wall. Then, you know, as you mentioned, even nowadays, if, if the story of this game was... Uh just put on social media and Facebook, I'm sure there'll be some people who believe it to be true. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, I don't know what that says about the day we, we live in, but I know. Um, that, but, that wouldn't be awful if you found out that people who played the game, you know, wait 30 years ago grew up to be um, conspiracy, conspiracy theory <laughs> believers. And, and yeah, that I contributed to that when I really <laughs> wanted to do the opposite. I, I hope that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious in the game that you're kind of making fun of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. But, uh, <laughs> but well, again, to this day, this game still remains very popular among fans as well. And um, uh, now I could spend a long time talking about this, but of course, more recently, you were involved in another hit game called Timberweed Park, where you came back with Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick and others uh, to make this game. And uh, so even today, when I go on social media and people ask, uh, you know, can you recommend a modern adventure game or any adventure game? Usually at the top or towards the top of the list is Timbleweed Park. Mm. So this game seems, again, to have really struck a chord with, with people, particular fans of uh, the classic adventure games. Um, so and I, I guess my question again would be, uh, how did you first, hear about this project how did you get involved uh, and when when in the development did you get involved in the yeah. development of timberweed park well there, there's a you know strong parallel with the maniac mansion project in that again ron and gary 
have been working on this on this game and the concept and the ideas for for months and they decided to do kickstarter so um they you know the my first i heard about it was that they were going to do this and that they ron invited me to take some early looks at the kickstarter page before it went live and make comments and feedback and um you know, I, I told him you know what i thought you know, you know i'm sure there's some tweaks just minor stuff typos whatever and um i'm pretty sure i made it clear that you know, if they get the funding and there's a way for me to be a part of it that i would love to be a part of it so he knew that i was interested and um when the game when the funding started i think the project launched in december of must have been 2014 is that right i believe so yes um he ended up um yeah it, they blew past their goal like pretty fast so him bringing me and mark ferrari on was kind of this big announcement to spike um you know get more people involved and and you know, kind of bringing the whole team back together and so i i you know was officially brought onto the project before the you know, before the kickstarter ended and got to participate in multiple brainstorming sessions where we took the the story that they had and just you know, fleshed out um the actual puzzles and and um uh, so i was much more of it on the design part of it even though i wasn't there for the initial i think i think that in designing the puzzles and the and writing dialogue and, and doing cutscenes, I was, you know, I had a pretty big part on that too. Some of it was similar to Maniac Mansion, but you know, it, it was it, it was fun. So, you know, it, it was, um, I think I remember the first, I was a little nervous. Um, you know, it's like, you know, I was wondering, you know, do we still have it? Do I still have it? Mm. The ability to actually get together with these guys and, and, and be funny and, and brilliant and, and, and pull it all together. And I think after like five minutes of the first brainstorming session, things just kind of got right into into the into gear and just felt like, okay, oh yeah, I know this. I, I know this feeling. Okay, we, we can do it. Um, and from then on, it was just as great. It was a really fun project to work on. Um, Ron, it, I see, consider Ron to be the project leader on this. And you know, he's he had been doing games nonstop pretty much from Lucas on, where I had taken a break for like ten or fifteen years. So I felt like he had grown a lot as a game designer and learned a lot more of things. So I learned a lot on the project. Um and um it was just it's just a really fun group, really fun team. I mean, most games I worked on, not all, but most um the team was just a really great group of people and this one is definitely one of the best yeah i think that's a sense that we we get certainly with interviews and even playing the game that it's kind of hard to explain but it kind of feels like you guys had fun making it you know writing the yeah. dialogue creating the characters because they're great characters <laughs> uh, and it's a particular ransom the clown is uh, i think a lot of people's yeah. you know one of the favorites um yeah. do you have actually to ask as well do you have any particular favorite character or favorite moment in in yeah, the game well, yourself well, for sure, Dolores is my favorite. Yes, and I, I got to write a lot of her her stuff. Um, I mean, I I had a really strong memory of my my feeling when I got the call that I got to join Lucasfilm Games, and I was jumping around, dancing around the house for a bit when I got that first phone call. In fact, I was so excited that I forgot to ask what the, my salary was going to be. <laughs> I didn't care really um, that they actually were going to pay me to do this. So. Um, I just, you know, identified with that a lot. So right, being able to write that that whole sequence um, was really fun, and and she was my favorite character. So so you know, we did that follow-on mini game called Dolores. Um, mm. You know about that? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to play, but Laura did play it and reviewed on the podcast, which she liked as well. Sure. And and yeah, it was a nice surprise for people. I I still have to play it myself. Yeah, I have it downloaded. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ron, you know, Ron was updating you know coming up with a, a new he wanted to redo an engine um kind of start over and and do a bunch of things that 
differently than he had done with Emily Park. So it's kind of really a test of that engine that we did this and spent like a month or a month and a half working on it and um and released and then we released the source code for the game too so um people can actually look at the code and modify it and play with it and as as a result we ended up with um localization into a bunch of languages that we never would have probably done ourselves because the fans did the localization um so that was that was a lot of fun to do that um and i got to be you know we got to spend more time with dolores too which mm. is great yeah no she's one of my favorite characters as well again she seemed very relatable i think more so than any of the other characters and i guess that's because you were the one who wrote it and um she, similar she to your like, experiences <laughs> yeah well she was also maybe one of the only people in town that was normal <laughs> yes i think that's I mean, it yes i mean most most everyone else was like wacky and but maybe maybe um you know the the one at the um uh what's your name at the news at the newspaper oh uh, yeah i can't remember yeah, her name but yeah she's yeah, what i think yeah, her natalie. and yeah those two yeah. are probably the two most normal characters yeah. <laughs> natalie um she was pretty normal um but um pretty much everyone else is like you know crazy so you know it doesn't make it's not and she was so sweet and and, and the woman who did the voicing for her just was just perfect just nailed it and she actually when we did auditions um of different for the voice talent and she was one of the few who actually pronounced the word solder like you have to use you know soldering some electronic equipment she's one of the only ones who actually knew how to pronounce it and she's actually um um a sound designer so he actually works in the game industry so she so it was a really good fit it was almost typecasting in a sense so, so oh, it was great yeah no, definitely the voice the voice cast was was excellent as well for you know for everyone including the you know the, the sheriff arena i'm sure is, an, is another popular character uh-huh. <laughs> yeah and um and, and then so when you were designing the game, you mentioned you were working on the puzzles and uh, the design of it. And th- this game is set, I believe it's 1987. And it's uh, it's, it's kind of like, uh, an, a, or a, you know, it's a, a sequel, not a sequel, but it's what the, another next game would be at, from Maniac Mansion if it were made today. Um, but I guess since you already had a lot of fans of, well, Maniac Mansion, Monkey Island, Zach McCracken, and so how did you go about getting the balance of appealing to those fans and then trying to appeal to new gamers as well who might not have played those games? So was that a factor in your decisions for the game? or? Yeah, well, because it was a Kickstarter, um, I, I think while we were creating the game, we were all of us were really focused on you know, those who paid for the game. And right. we knew they were. We knew all pretty much all of them were fans of our old games. So, did a huge amount of fan service and a lot of Easter eggs and, you know, maybe to the point, you know, maybe too much. And <laughs> you know, once the game released and we got started getting reviewers and people who weren't um, huge fans of our old games started complaining about you know all the in jokes and all the you know, the reference and the self referential humor. And so we ended up um, cutting, not cutting, but adding a, a, a mode for annoying in-jokes, where it's an option <laughs> on the option that. screen. Yeah, so it's an option screen option. And by default, it's turned off. And if you know the old stuff and you want to get it, then you turn it back on again. And um, yeah, that might have helped, but it was also kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of, of addressing that. Um, and, uh, if we, if we were to do it again, maybe we would have pulled back a bit on that, but it was, you know, part of the fun of, of creating a game is imagining the experience someone's going to have when they play it for the first time. You're kind of creating these jokes for, for the fans, for the people who are, who are supporting you on it. So, you know, we, we tried to do as much of that as we could and, like I said, maybe maybe more than we needed to. Although you know, well, people who people who were fans they had no problem with that, so they liked that. 
Yeah, it's, as, as I mentioned, you know, whenever people on social media ask for recommendations of adventure games, Timbleweed Park is usually towards the top at the very least. So it, it clearly struck a chord with them. And I know people who have spoken to, um, you know, for our Patreon as well, there was one person who told me that this is the game that he's been waiting for, Timbleweed Park. He didn't use a walkthrough. He just spent, uh, I think, however long uh, it took to play this game and just using himself um you know, just playing it, and he, he really enjoyed it, as did a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what... The, the, well, actually, yes, I wanted to ask you as well. Now, without going into any spoilers, but... Um, so I know people discuss the ending of Timbleweed Park. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it wouldn't be a Ron Gilbert game without an ending that was discussed by a lot of people. Yeah, I, I, um, I say that was a 100%, 100% Ron Gilbert idea. Okay, that's what you <laughs> ask. <laughs> I mean, some people you're... love it, some people... Yeah. We're kind of like, yeah, but so that, that was 100% Ron Gilbert's idea. So that was from the beginning. Do you, uh, do you know? No, it wasn't. Well, he might have been in the back of his mind, but he didn't communicate that. So I, I think he didn't come up with the actual way the ending turned out until partway through production. And we had I mean, we had all this art that we had done at, for pre-production, which was like, you know, the, call it thumbnail or wireframe art where, you know, just really, really rough versions of all the rooms. And he originally was saying, yeah, it would be great to have like, you know, the, the making of addendum where you can look at all these original rooms on, as part of the release. And I guess at some point he kind of put that idea together with, with the ending and came up with this whole, whole way of tying it all together, which I won't go into. Yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of hard. With... <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, that was so, OK. Um, I, it's probably not the way I would have done it because I, I don't, I, you know, my, if you look at Zach McCracken, everything ends and everyone's happy and there are no, like, and are the aliens going to come back? You know, it's just like, you know, I, I like happy endings. So that's not the way I would do my own game. But um, um, I totally appreciate the way he did it and i won't say anymore <laughs> <laughs> i know it's hard to to, to say anymore without spoiling so right. but anyway yeah. I, th- I think the, the last thing i'll say is that it kind of there are hints given in the game leading up to it um, yeah that's you know but anyway i think we've said nearly enough we've danced around that <laughs> and uh, what what was it like then as you mentioned you were uh you know you know like riding a bicycle back together um, with these people who worked on these games. Now, I know other developers of classic adventure games uh, came back on Kickstarter. And what they told me when I spoke with them was that f- for them, they had a challenge because before, for example, if they were working with Sierra, you know, they could they do, they only had to focus on making the game and let Sierra or Ken Williams focus on the production or the budget or marketing, whereas now you have to do everything. So what, what was it like uh, working on this game without LucasArts, without, um, you know, the big company behind you guys giving you the budget and the money and the marketing? Uh, yeah. what did, was that a challenge by, uh, by any yeah, chance? Yeah, it probably was. Benefits? It, it was something that I didn't have to deal with a whole lot with because, I, you know, that was really much more um, Ron, Ron's area since it was his his focus. So he, he, he we hired some people to help us with um, social media and and press. Um, but, you know, clearly we didn't have this massive budget to do it like like a Lucasfilm would have had. Um, so in some ways, I think the Kickstarter was really the marketing campaign. Mm. at least initially but you know it's it's still selling so um that's that's good to know that people are still liking it even afterwards it's not gonna it's not gonna age because of its look because it's intended to look like it was an old game so that's nice um and uh but yeah it it, uh, on the other hand having some other marketing marketing team do it and you having to do stuff for the marketing team. I don't know that it ever happened when I was at Lucas. Um, you know, marketing was always very supportive, but I'm sure that at some point um, you hear stories how marketing divisions or departments start driving the games in a way that mm. could eat into the creative choices that the developers might have. Um, and I, I, I'm fortunate to never have had to you know, work at a triple A studio where that was uh, an issue. Right, just 
tick box here you know this is what people want so yeah yeah. just more explosions more yeah it becomes more of a committee designed game as opposed to right by the designers yeah no i I think you can definitely tell with timberweed park that it wasn't that that it was a labor of love for you guys right and um um so yeah so uh, i mean i could speak to you for (laughs) not more but i don't want to keep you um don't want to keep you too long um is there anything else that you would like to say uh to people listening um i know that is it i mean i know you probably can't say anything but i've have heard that uh, the makers of timberweed park are working on something else is there anything that you're able to say or shall we just leave it <laughs> probably should leave it we could talk more <laughs> we could you know I, I i hope to be able to show off the rubrics game and you know, in a few months, that would be really fun. Um, and I w- would love to work with Ron again on, on some future project because you know it was that was a blast. But that and and you know I, I like creating games more than I like playing them. So right, being being on a team to do a game is really uh, always a lot of fun. So I hope that happens again. Yeah, hopefully. Well, I'd love to have you back on this podcast again, David. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to speak to you. You're the first LucasArts person that I've spoken to. Hopefully I can speak to some more. Um, But thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything that you would like to say to people listening or anything at all? Yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter. It's probably where I'm most active. Uh, David B. Fox, B as in boy. And um, I'm usually pretty responsive. So find me there and um, say hi well thank you very much and uh the very best of luck with whatever you do next and uh better you know start checking out those vr games so you've okay you work in marketing yet so <laughs> well well thank you very much david take care then okay thank you so that was my interview with david fox and i hope you enjoyed it and a huge thank you to david fox for speaking to me as well and uh, I look forward to hearing what he works on next and hopefully I can talk to him again soon in the future and hopefully I can talk to some other former LucasArts people in the future as well. So that's it for this week and for this year. Thank you as always for listening and for supporting this podcast. It really does make a huge difference uh, to us and uh, it's been quite a year for everyone so here's hoping that 2021 will be better for us all uh next week i will be joined by sean from silver spook studio as he talks to me about the engine that he's creating that will help just about anybody create their own adventure games so i'm looking forward to finding out more and so until then have a happy new year everyone take care If you like the Adventure Games podcast, then please subscribe, rate, and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes if you can, as every review helps, and reviews will help get the word out, especially for Adventure Game developers who appear on the podcast. Now, you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Advent Game Pod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you are a Adventure Game developer or Adventure Game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you